0: I don't know about you but I woke up this morning and uh, I had the unfortunate pleasure of seeing in the news that there was yet another mass shooting and uh, as we understand there was a shooting in Gilroy there has now been a shooting in El Paso and this morning Dayton Ohio scores of people have been gunned down over the last week and I was thinking about it as I was just thinking about this morning, and I thought, man, Lord, this is uh, enough's enough. And then I was reading through the book of Psalms, and I found one of the psalms I love to read, and it was a psalm of lament. You know what a lament is? We have a whole book called Lamentations. It's a time in which the people of God come to God, and they say, God, we're complaining to you. This is not the way it's supposed to be. Do something. And so I wrote a prayer of lament and I want to pray for us this morning as a church. So let's pray. Father, here we are again with heavy hearts. Our minds are filled with worries and fears. Our hearts are anxious and distraught. We know that you hear the prayers of your saints and so here we are praying to you in faith. With you there is nothing in this world that goes unnoticed. You see the end from the beginning but we come today... To pray like the psalmist in Psalm 77, who asks these questions: How, how long, O oh Lord, has His steadfast love forever ceased? Has His promises come to an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has He in anger shut up His compassion? And so, yet again, Lord, we hear that there's a tragedy of mass shooting. People are killed. Another gunman is roaming around looking for some who he may devour. Lord, we are so tired of this wretched evil. We don't know what to do, and so we're asking for your help. We're so tired of living under the anxiety and fear. We're so tired of the arguments of people saying how best to fix this. We need you. But it seems like you're so distant and you're far off as though you don't care. And so we ask boldly for you to intervene and to execute justice in our land. We're asking for your great mercy to bring an end to this nonsense. And we ask for your grace to sustain all those who have lost loved ones. God, we are asking for your grace and for your comfort to be extended to those who are heartbroken and hurting. Please, God, would you do this? Help us to know that you hear our cry of lament today. And, oh, God, yes, yes, we know that you are the everlasting God. We know in this place that we have hope in you, that you, O oh Lord, are our host who surrounds us. You are shield. You're our rock. You're our defender. You're the one who advocates for the weak. You are the holy one. You are the God of our salvation. You are the God of our creation. Grant us your presence, God. You are our redeemer, and the Bible says Jesus is our peace, and so we ask that you would cause peace to sweep across this land through the preaching of the gospel. And we ask this because we know you can do it. Help us to trust you. Help us to continue to pray night and day. And thank you, God, for listening to our lament. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We're in a series of hospitality. This is not how I pictured introducing the, the series on hospitality Is having to pray for yet another group of people who have tragically lost their lives. But hospitality is something that I think can prove to be an effective tool in the ministry of the gospel where we can actually counsel where we can actually help, where we actually serve and love people in our community. And so I actually think it is pretty appropriate that the Lord would lay on our hearts and that we as a church would be studying hospitality in the culture in which we live. When I say the word hospitality, what comes to mind? I've done a little research by asking some of you all, what comes to mind when you think of hospitality? There's usually three answers. Number one. I think of entertaining people by giving them refreshments at my home. So you go to Costco and you get frozen tacos and you hand them up. <laughs> Secondly, I think of hospitality as like the industry of, of uh, hotels, the hospitality industry. Or thirdly, and this was one that was interesting. I have to read this one. What comes to mind is the Pinterest-inspired, Instagrammable display of creativity, I picture mason jars filled with Edison bulbs, wooden crates made out of reclaimed pallets, and of course, the all-important sign written in cursive, gather. (laughs) Somebody shopped at Hobby Lobby. (laughs) But is this what Paul had in mind when he commanded the church to seek to show hospitality in Romans 12? Is this the kind of thing Paul had in mind when he said one of the requirements for being a pastor or elder is that you are hospitable? Do you know how to shop at Hobby Lobby? If that is true, then hospitality is only for those who have certain resources, namely a beautiful home worth Instagramming and also a Pinterest account and perhaps a frequent buyer card from Hobby Lobby. But if that's true, then that alienates a whole swath of people. If that's true, then a whole group of people don't have to bother with obeying the command to be hospitable. And that's why it's important for us to understand the biblical hospitality and what it is. It is a radical thing. It doesn't sound radical, but it is. We live in a culture that prizes itself on people being busy, in fact, too busy for other people. We live in a culture in which it is wanted to be as far away as your, from your neighbors as possible, and if not, big fences. Or make sure you have a garage door that will open and you can drive in quickly and shut that thing behind you. No talking to anybody. Make sure on your lunch hour at work that you eat alone. You have important things to do. Facebook won't scroll itself. So what we need to do in this series is we need to reorient our minds to what the Bible has to say about hospitality. Because what the Bible has to say about hospitality is indeed countercultural. And what I would say is it's incredibly radical. Hospitality is the idea that we are welcoming others into our very lives. Welcoming others into our very lives. I get this from Romans chapter 15, starting in verse 2, 2 through 7, where we read the Apostle Paul writing, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. When you look at this, you start to see that this passage is fundamentally about welcome. And what I've begun to realize is as I was studying hospitality throughout the scriptures, the key component of all hospitality is the notion of welcome. There is no example in the Bible in which hospitality takes place and there is not also welcome. The two go together. And so the question is, what is welcome, and how does it relate to hospitality? Amy Oden, in her book called God's Welcome, Hospitality for a Gospel-Hungry World, she writes this, gospel hospitality is God's welcome, a welcome that is deep and wide. Gospel hospitality is God's welcome into a new way of seeing and living. Ultimately, gospel hospitality is God's welcome into abundant life, into God's own life, As we participate in gospel hospitality, God's welcome becomes a way of life that we share with the world. Always, always, it is God's welcome that we offer to others. At its deepest, therefore, hospitality always points to God. Always points to God. When I read that, I thought to myself, that's exactly right. We just sang mercy is more, and we just sang about how God welcomes sinners. And in welcoming sinners, God is displaying for us how he is the most hospitable being in the universe. For there is no reason why God should be compelled to welcome people like us into his presence. For we are, were, for us who are Christians, his enemies. We hated God. And yet God welcomed us. And so what we see in in Romans 15.7, firstly, is this, that hospitality is welcoming one another as Christ welcomed you for the glory of God. And the reason why I say that is, like I said, because welcome is always included in hospitality and the concept of hospitality and welcome, they have to go together. They have to go together. But when you look at that verse, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God, let me ask you this question. When you look at that, what is it about that sentence that kind of captures your attention? What is it that your eyes go to and you kind of linger over? Which part of that sentence? Many people would say, well, the glory of God, okay, that's good. But most people that I've asked about this question, they would say, well, I naturally gravitate towards welcome one another. And I think the reason why we do that is because we have been trained, and we have it in our minds, that this Bible is God's instruction manual. And therefore, when we read the Bible, what we're doing is hunting for commands. We're just hunting for how to live practically. And so it says, welcome one another. And we're like, okay, that, that's what I need to know. Okay, ooh, close the Bible, we're good. Welcome one another. Got it. But if you notice, it says, welcome one another. And then there's that all-important two-letter word, as. Which indicates for us, this is the manner in which you are to welcome others. To put it straightforward, it goes like this. The command is welcome one another, but you will fail at that unless you are welcoming others in the way Christ has welcomed you. You have to know how Christ has welcomed you first before you can ever begin to welcome others effectively. You guys tracking with me? And that is all for the glory of God. We do it for his glory. We do it that he might be praised. And so I ask the question, how is welcome related to hospitality? Well, the Greek word that kind of incorporates the idea of welcome has three different parts to it. There's three different aspects of this idea of welcome. Here it goes. Number one, the first concept of welcome is to invite somebody into your very life. What I mean by welcoming people into your life is simply this. It's inviting someone into the very personal, very private, very real you. It's the idea of welcoming someone into perhaps your home or welcoming them into perhaps the way in which you work or to your hobbies or running errands together. You are welcoming someone else into your life. That's what welcome means in the first way. And that's the most common way it's used in Scripture. The second is welcome is receiving, receiving another person into a particular space. So for instance, you can receive a person into your home. You can receive a person into your car as you carpool. You can receive someone into the, I don't know, like the row in which you're sitting at at an event or something like that. You can receive someone into your space. You know, we have a saying in this, ooh, man, like give me my space. And so that's the second way. The third way is the idea of welcoming others is to take one by the hand who is in danger and lead them to safety. It's taking someone who is in danger by the hand and saying, follow me, I will bring you to safety. And so when you put those three notions together, that's how the Bible kind of used this idea of welcome. You have, I am welcoming, inviting someone into my very life, my very private, my very real life. And or I am welcoming, receiving them into my home or my space, whatever that may be. And also taking them by the hand and leading them from danger to safety. That is the kind of concept behind this notion of welcome. And every time hospitality is talked about or demonstrated in the Bible, welcome is implied. It's there every time. Hospitality is welcoming others receiving others not to entertain them but to incorporate them into your very life now when you put this all together and you think about it if you invite someone into your life that means that it's going to take some time you're going to have to spend time with people you can't pull out your phone every 8 seconds and also if it's true that welcoming people is an essential part of hospitality then to practice hospitality and receive people into perhaps our homes or our apartments or our cars or or whatever means that it may cost us something regarding our resources resources meaning anything that is at your disposal that you possess and then the idea of welcoming others taking them by the hand out of danger into Some sort of safety could be the idea of perhaps somebody is in your home or in your car who is in anguish because of whatever is happening in their home or in their personal life. And so you're there. God has placed you there in order to take them by their hand and to lead them to a place where they can be safe, to say a kind word, to pray, to hear, to just sit and listen, to weep with those who weep. And if you put these things together then what you have is a very good definition of hospitality. And so we're going to define hospitality here at Golden Hills for the next four weeks and also at the Initiate Conference and something that I would love to just fall out of your mouth because you're hearing it so much. We're going to define hospitality like this. It is generously leveraging our resources in loving service to others for the glory of God. Let me say it again. It is generously leveraging our resources in loving service to others for the glory of God. When you look at that definition, you have it broken up in parts. Generously leveraging our resources, meaning we have to have the disposition that what we have is not our own. It has been lent to us by God himself. And what has been given to us that we are borrowing, whether that's our time or our energy or our homes or our clothes or our cars or our money, those resources are to be used generously. We are not to be hoarders. We are to be generous. Why? Because that is the God we serve. He is generous. And so we leverage these resources, we use these resources for this purpose to lovingly serve others. And I define others as not you. <laughs> Simple, right? Notice others is not people who look like you, think like you, talk like you, have the same skin color as you, socioeconomic background, education, neighborhood. Others. Just others. Others to lovingly serve others, ultimately for the glory of God. This is not that we might look great, that we might have a big following on Instagram, that we might be the kind of people that others are jealous of and we're posting and advertising and broadcasting all the good things that we're doing. No. This is for the glory of God. And therefore, we can serve in secret without anyone knowing And never be thanked, not once. And know that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. Because God is getting his glory. So hospitality and welcome go together. And so does the concept of reception, meaning you are receiving. You see, in our culture, when we hear welcome, like David did at the beginning of the service, hey, welcome one another. And you kind of like, hey, sit down. And so we equate welcome with greet. Welcome as a dress, like hello. But welcome is fundamentally more than that. It is receiving a person into your life. And so if we're to truly welcome someone, we have to receive them, embrace them, allow them into us. We see this in Hebrews 11. You know, the chapter on, on the Hall of Fame of Faith. And it's all these people who demonstrated faith one after another. It's amazing when you read it. And we see Rahab. You can read about Rahab in Joshua 2 through 6. And we read this in verse 31 by faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient, referring to the fall of Jericho. And it says, because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies, she acted in hospitality. And because she did so, she was not counted among those. were killed in Jericho her hospitality to put it bluntly saved her and what's amazing is this is found in the chapter in Hebrews 11 that talks about faith and what we can learn from this is you know what one of the greatest expressions that we have genuine saving faith in God is found in our hospitality In fact, when you read the Old Testament and the New Testament, what's amazing is God's people are oftentimes judged because of a lack of hospitality. And in the history of the Christian church, the most frequent reason why people were kicked out of the church was because of a lack of hospitality. It's that serious. And yet in our culture today, we just kind of go, eh. Who wants to make finger foods? I don't want people in my house. They're going to trounce dirt in it. I just got the new carpet installed. They have little kids. They might break this glass. They're going to stick their little greasy noses on our sliding glass door. (laughs) What if they eat our food? We just went to Costco. What if they stay for a long time? Do you see? Hospitality is an easy concept to grasp. But let me keep it real with you for a minute, Golden Hills. As easy as a concept as hospitality is to kind of grasp and understand with our mind, let me tell you this you if you actually want to obey god when you begin to practice hospitality you're going to find yourself going this is hard so hard and you will find yourself at some point going this ain't worth it this is way too hard and that's the exact moment when you realize ah i need god i need god Apart from Christ, you can't do it. So I say, the, the verse says this, welcome one another, receive them into your life as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Now I want to answer the question, how in the world does Christ welcome us? And I'm going to do it generally from Romans 15 and then we'll get to more specifics because in this series today, we're going to start with big ideas, but by the end of the month, we're going to hone down to some very precise very concrete application points but first we have to get the big idea stuff down first okay so big ideas and then we'll get smaller and smaller into very appropriate applications but how has christ welcomed us and you see it in the context of this verse in and of itself starting verse 2 where we're told let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up and just break that down for a second to please His neighbor, meaning we put others before ourselves. We see our neighbor and we're seeking to please our neighbor. And it says for his good. And the implication here is for their spiritual good. And then it says to build him up. And when Paul uses that phrase to build up, he uses it like Ephesians 4, which is to be built up into the image of Christ. To be built up in Christ likeness. And so when we put the idea of doing spiritual good to our neighbors, to please our neighbors with build up into the likeness of Christ, then you have an idea of what it looks like for Jesus to welcome us. For we were his neighbor and he sought our good, our spiritual good, as well as our physical good. And not only that, but then he also builds us up into his own image. And you can read Ephesians 4 and see how Paul breaks that down. This is the basis of all discipleship and all mission. You are not discipling another person or a group of people if you're only making these people more like you. I guess that's technically discipleship, except you're just discipling them in your own image. So if you only teach people how to talk like you and how to value the things you value and how to go about discipling others the way in which you disciple, you're not discipling people in the image of Jesus. You're not building them up in Christ-likeness. You're building them up in your own likeness. So we have to be oriented that our neighbor's spiritual good is to be our objective. And that spiritual good is that they come to know Christ and are more conformed into his image. That's discipleship. That's the purpose of missions. Christ's aim was not to please himself. Look at this in verse 3. He says, and here's the rationale, why should we do this? Because Christ did not please himself. So we don't please ourselves. We please our neighbors. Why? Because that's what Christ did. So if you want to follow Jesus, you have to live like Jesus. How did Jesus live? He pleased his neighbor. And so should we. For their spiritual good and that they would be built up in Christ's likeness. David read the Psalm, or Philippians 2. If you remember, he read, Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only look to his own interests, but also to the interests of others and have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He read that. That we are to put others before ourselves, we're to please our neighbor for their spiritual good and that they be built up in Christ. That is what we're commanded to do. The question is, are we being obedient to that? That's what we're called to do. Does this mean that we just like don't care about ourselves at all? Don't be absurd. To love your neighbor doesn't mean you don't take showers anymore. (laughs) And you don't eat lunch. And like you sell all that you have and you don't have anything anymore. That's not at all what's going on here. What it is is saying, no, 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 if you have a lunch and you're about to whoop on this foot-long sandwich and you see somebody who's hungry, who has nothing, and you go, hmm, let me pray for you that you would have food. You pray for them that they have food, and then you're like, "All right, thanks." And then you whoop on your footlong sandwich, but you only you leave the last four inches because you're like, "I'm stuffed," and you throw that thing in the garbage. Guess what? You have not loved your neighbor. Sometimes, and this is going to sound audacious, but sometimes we need to think about what we're praying and perhaps ask ourselves the question: Is God raising me up to be the very answer to my own prayer? If I'm praying for my neighbor to have the money they need to pay their water bill. Am I the person God is raising up who has been supplied with the money to actually lend to my Christian brother or sister and say, here, here's the money, pay your water bill. Is there a point at which I can evaluate my prayers and say, at some point I got to go from prayer and perhaps be the provider. For God has given me these resources for a reason. That's a challenge, is it not? Not. And then he goes on, verse 4, Paul says, For what was written in our former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. He says two things will produce hope. Number one is endurance, and number two is encouragement from the Scriptures. Which means if you want to have hope, true, abiding, lasting hope, it is only going to come through you enduring the self-control and discipline of obedience to God and also the encouragement that is brought out from the scriptures, which I would say is this, if you're not saturated by God's word, then what you're saying is I don't want much hope. That's why I don't understand when we preach about Christian hope and then don't talk about the Bible. It says that the encouragement of the scriptures And enduring in obedience is how hope is produced. So we have to be people who are so saturated with God's word and enduring hardships and obedience to God's word so that we would abound in hope. Hope, apart from scriptures, is no hope. That's just pop psychology. And if I gave you hope that wasn't tied to the scriptures, I'm just your life coach and cheerleader. We got plenty of those. Give me God. Give me God's word. And then he goes on to say this in verse 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement, same two words, may he grant you or give you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you notice what Paul does here? He prays. He prays for unity and he prays for harmony. And you notice how he prays for it? He says, may God give you harmony. Which tells me harmony and unity are not things that we are ever going to experience by pursuing those things themselves. You can never experience unity by pursuing unity. You can't experience harmony by pursuing harmony. Harmony and unity are experienced as two people are pursuing the same object. Think about it when you go to sleep tonight. Lay in bed and then let your thoughts be filled with nothing other than this. Go to sleep, go to sleep, go to sleep, fall asleep, fall asleep. The more you think about falling asleep, is it more likely or less likely you'll actually fall asleep? Less likely. So instead it says, may God provide you, may God give you harmony, unity, in accord with Christ Jesus, or in other words, in following Jesus, may you be unified, may you be experiencing harmony. And it goes like this. You don't experience harmony or unity when two individual people pretend there's one here and there's one over here, when they look at each other and they're like, oh, and they embrace each other. That may seem like how harmony and unity is built, but that's not. Instead, what happens, as Paul says, is just imagine that this podium right here is Jesus. I know it's terrible, but just just imagine. And so I'm over here pursuing Jesus with all I have. I just want Christ. I want to be built up in Christ. And then this person over here is also wanting to be built up in Christ. They just want Jesus. And so as they draw nearer to Jesus and are being built up more and more into Jesus' image, they're coming closer to him. But if I'm over here being built up in Christ and drawing near to Christ, and I'm just drawing near to him and just experiencing... (gasps) What happens to the relationship between me and this guy? We have now been drawn together so that in my closeness to Christ and his closeness to Christ, we actually are close together. And so that's awesome. And so so what is so important is this. If we as a church, Golden Hills Community Church, if we're ever going to experience unity and harmony, it's going to come by this way, that you and I make a decision in our minds that we are going to please our neighbors for their spiritual good and build them up in Christ-likeness. And as you relentlessly pursue Christ, I commit to relentlessly pursue Christ, we in our common pursuit of Christ will look at each other and say, you too. And we're going to experience unity and harmony that you have never experienced before. I wrote in, I don't know if you got the congregational letter I sent out by email and in, in, in person, but that's the unity I'm talking about. I sat in the business meeting and I'm weeping. Not because we sat around and go, hey, everyone, let's sing songs and experience unity on Monday night. There was a unity that God did because the church was pursuing Christ. And then it says, so therefore, in light of all this, Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Do you see it, brothers and sisters? As we pursue Christ, we experience the unity and harmony. Now that's just a surface understanding of how God has welcomed us. And now I want to get to the more nuts and bolts of it. So we're going to go to Ephesians chapter 2. And we start in verse 11. How has Christ welcomed us? Well, here's a little bit of an answer more fully. This is how Christ has welcomed us. The Apostle Paul writes in verse 11 and 12 about the condition that we all were in before we knew Christ. It comes on the heels of Ephesians 2.1 that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And then he says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in flesh by hands. Remember that you were... Look at these three descriptors. You were separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. You see, sin separates us from God. And it is adequate and right to describe that condition as being separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, or that is alienated from being a member of God's people and strangers to the covenants of promise. You have no hope. So, if you are in sin that has not been forgiven by Christ, then you are completely separated, alienated, and completely a stranger to the things of God. In other words, because of sin, you are unwelcomed by God. You're unwelcomed. You can't come in here. You are a sinner. Now, that sounds tragic and that sounds horrible, but verse 13 is in the Bible. And it reads, but now in Christ, you who were far off, unwelcomed because of sin, you were, or you have been, brought near by the blood of Christ. You are now welcomed. Why? Because of Christ. It's because of Jesus that you're welcomed. What did He do? He shed his blood for you. And what does that mean? He bought you. What does that mean? He's adopted you. What does that mean? I'm a part of God's family. What does that mean? I'm in the household of God. I'm a child of the king because Christ bought me. What does that mean? Jesus says, come to me. You're welcomed here. Are you kidding me? Those who were once far off have been brought near by Jesus. Christine Pohl, in a book she wrote called Making Room, she writes this, Jesus gave his life so that persons could be welcomed into the kingdom, and in so doing, Jesus linked hospitality, grace, and sacrifice in the deepest and most personal way imaginable jesus has welcomed us by his dying uh, the brutal death of crucifixion whereby his blood was poured out to make sufficient payment for sins so that we can be forgiven of all of our rebellion against god and graciously lovingly and joyfully welcomed into the very life of god that is hospitality god welcomes us into his life and then we continue on in verse 14 to 16 that Jesus himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances so that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Do you notice that? As my friend and my brother comes closer to Christ and I come closer to Christ, we're coming closer to our peace And Jesus, who is our peace, has killed the hostility that may remain between me and my brother. So that as we approach Christ and we are in the church together, we are no longer him and me. We are us. And what us means is I am with Christ. We are now united. We're one in Christ. The hostility is gone. And you know one of the reasons why I think we're so scared to practice hospitality is because we fear the messiness of relationships. Ministry would be so much easier if it wasn't for all the people. (laughs) Family gatherings would be so much easier if they just didn't come. (laughs) (laughs) We fear the work that is implied. We fear the unknown. What kind of conversations are we going to have? We fear physical harm, perhaps. We fear ideological Conflict. We fear emotional, psychological harm. We fear having to make sacrifice. We fear all this stuff because we have not come to realize in the gospel, all the hostility between us has been killed in Christ. The gospel makes peace. Relationships are forged in hospitality. When you welcome someone into your life, and you talk with them, and you listen to them, and you pray with them, and you share your resources with them, you are moving people from the point where they're strangers, they become guests, guests become friends, friends become spiritual family. We as Christians are always aiming that every stranger become the spiritual family of God. And the best way to do that is hospitality. For in hospitality, we get to demonstrate for a watching world what God is like. This is what God is like. He sacrifices. This is what God is like. He's gracious. This is what God is like. He's welcoming. This is what God is like. He shares. This is what God is like. He listens. This is what God is like. He asks insightful questions. He has good conversation. This is what God is like. God loves you. When we come together as a church to share in communion, what we're doing is we are publicly, as the body of Christ, remembering God who is the most hospitable being in the universe and has welcomed us to himself by the body and blood of Jesus. We take the communion cracker, we take the the cup, and we say because of these two elements, because of the body and the blood of Jesus, I am now welcomed into the life of God. Apart from Christ, I am not welcomed, but because of Christ, I can come boldly into the presence of God. And as we take communion, it's also a visible thing that we do where we are welcomed to God's table, where God says, you there, I see you. Pull up a chair. Join us. Come and eat with us. Christine Pohl in her book, she says, Eating together, ritualized in the Lord's Supper, continually reenacts the center of the gospel. As we remember the cost of our welcome, which is Christ's body and blood, We also celebrate the reconciliation and relationship that's been made available to us through his sacrifice and through his hospitality. A shared meal is the activity which is most closely tied to the reality of God's kingdom, just as a shared meal is the most basic expression of hospitality. When we do the one, we are confronted with the other. When we come to take communion as a church now, we are confronted with the reality that Jesus has welcomed us, a great sacrifice to himself, and he says, welcome others as I have welcomed you. This is going to be costly. This is going to be hard. But God has promised, I'll be with you to the end of the age. Do not fear. So, Father, would we, as your church, take what we've just seen and your costly sacrificial welcome of us and we we return and do likewise god would you teach us what it means to be the kind of people who display for the watching world what the gospel is all about that christ sent by god the father to rescue us from our sins welcomes us that we may experience the very life of god having our sins forgiven and hope in our hearts So, God, would you remind us of these things as we come to communion now? In Jesus' name, amen.